Let's briefly pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Speak to us this morning, please. Make it clear. Help me to make it clear. But above all, Holy Spirit, come and do your work. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now, for some time, I have been cherishing the hope that I would be able to preach through a series on the letter to the Hebrews. And um, I've got the chance at last. For the, first, uh, for the five weeks of Lent, as I've already said, we'll be studying um, the first part of Christianity Explored, and, uh, and the Sunday morning ministry will be actually connected to Christianity Explored. But there are three Sundays before Lent begins, and I want to use those three Sundays to pitch into Hebrews, so to speak, and uh, then later on in the year to take it up again. So this morning we're looking at chapter 1, and it will really help if you have chapter 1 there open in front of you, and perhaps a finger or a thumb or whatever in Colossians chapter 1. Now the first thing to note about the letter to the Hebrews is that right from the very beginning the focus is on Jesus. In chapter 12, the writer tells us that we must fix our eyes on Jesus. You see, he was writing to a group of Jewish Christian believers who were under terrific pressure to abandon their Christian faith and go back to Judaism. And the way to resist that pressure was to fix their eyes on Jesus, to think about the person who is at the center of their faith. And the same is true of you and me, isn't it? That's why this letter is so contemporary, so important for us to understand. Let me explain something which might puzzle you. <laughs> for many years it was thought, and many people still think this, that Paul wrote Hebrews. He may well have done. He may well have done. Questions of authorship really aren't that important, because what we're dealing with here is the revealed word of God, and it doesn't really matter who wrote it. It's God-breathed. And all we need to know is that it is the word of God. Nevertheless, I want just to explain why I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews. <laughs> just to avoid confusion. The real reason is that the concept of faith in Hebrews, in particular in chapter 11, is very different from the concept of faith we find in Paul's other letters. There are no personal greetings at the beginning of the letter, as you see. There are a very few right at the end, but there are no personal references at the beginning, and that's most unusual for Paul's letters. Put it simply, I think a different pen is at work. And whose is it? Well, I believe it's Apollos. Let me tell you about Apollos. We find him in Acts 18.24, and he's described there as a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. And you certainly needed a thorough knowledge of the scriptures if you were going to write Hebrews, because as you know, as you see from chapter 1, he quotes from the Old Testament, from the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew scriptures, extensively. And remember, in those days, you couldn't just flick a few pages and find a reference. The scriptures were on scrolls. So very often, the quotations came from memory. And sometimes they weren't exactly identified, the reference wasn't exactly identified, somewhere it says was quite acceptable. Now, Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke powerfully and boldly to the Jews, trying to persuade them that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. Somehow, in Apollos' preaching, 
or evangelism, there seems to be no teach, uh, suggestion rather that he was interested in preaching to the Gentiles. He, he was concentrating on his fellow Jews. His understanding of the Christian faith did need a certain amount of polishing. And we're told in verse 26 of Acts 18 that Priscilla and Aquila, two Jewish refugees from Rome, explained the way of God to him more adequately. But after this extra tuition, verse 27 tells us that when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him to write to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving there, he was a great help to those who believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And that is what throbs through Hebrews. The supremacy and the deity and the centrality of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's that focus that we find paramount in Hebrews. So, if you wonder why I keep on saying the writer, you'll know that um, I think Apollos wrote Hebrews, but I could be wrong, so I'll hedge my bets. The important thing is that we're dealing with the word of God. Okay, the, 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 the title for the sermon on the notice sheet is God's final word. And in the first two verses, we find very clearly that that final word is the Lord Jesus Christ. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. So there it is, the centrality and importance of the Lord Jesus Christ. But who is he? And what does he do? Well, verse 3 answers both of those questions. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. I was often told as a, a, a young child, you're so like your father. Now, it doesn't always follow that um, sons resemble their father. Both my sons are huge, as you know. I'm the right size, but they are just out of proportion. But um, I have ways of putting them in their place. All the same. In some families, the resemblance between children and their parents is remarkable. Well, verse 3 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Now, that's pretty clear, isn't it? The exact representation of his being. But some folk, notably Jehovah's Witnesses, insist on denying that the Lord Jesus is God in human form. That's why I asked for the passage from Colossians 1 to be read. Because again, it makes Jesus' identity absolutely clear. Verse 15 of Colossians 1. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. In other words, he's the bit of the God you can't see that you can see. He's the visible image of the invisible God. The bit of the God you can't see that you can see. 
And verse 19 of Colossians 1 goes further. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And this is one of those points when the authorized version wins over the other versions, where actually the authorized, the King James Version, makes the, the truth clearer. For in him dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The fullness of the Godhead bodily. In other words, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his body, in his human form, dwelt the fullness of the Godhead. I don't see that you can be clearer than that. So, that of course referred to his earthly existence. And by the time this letter was written, his earthly ministry was over. He had ascended into heaven. So let's again look at verse 3 of Hebrews 1. He is the exact representation of God's being, sustaining all things by the power of his powerful word. In other words, Jesus is the pivot of creation. Everything depends on him. Everything has always depended on him because he created everything. Colossians 1.16 is very specific on this point. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or rulers or powers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Now, unfortunately, in the Jehovah's Witness translation of the Bible, the, the, the New World translation, they have inserted a word into Colossians 1.16. Granted, they put big square brackets around it, but the word that they've inserted is the word other. So it reads, for by him all other things were created. In other words, he was created first, then by him all other things were created. Now, supposing I was to say, I was to ask Jenny to come up and uh, stand with me, and I was to say, this is my wife. That would be one statement, wouldn't it? And then next Sunday, if I was to stand here with a different lady and say, this is my other wife, you'd want to ask some questions about that, wouldn't you? Because it completely changes the statement, doesn't it? Totally. For by him all things were created is one statement. And the Greek word is panta, the neuter plural. All things, all things. But if you say all other things, <laughs> you're changing the statement completely. No. Jesus is the origin of all things. For by him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or rulers or powers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. As I say that, verse 19 of Colossians 1 in the authorized version seems to me to, to clinch the, the argument, for in him dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily, bodily, in his hands, in his arms, in his legs, in his head, was the fullness of the Godhead. So he is the origin of all things. He sustains all things by his powerful word. From beginning to end, everything depends on him. And there's one more thing that we must note from Hebrews uh, 1 verse 3. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Okay, he's the pivot of history. All things were created by him and for him, and that's tremendous. 
But for people like you and me, cosmic reality isn't so exciting as personal reality. And the most wonderful thing about Jesus for me is that he is my savior. Earlier on in the service when we were singing through Jesus' name above all names, the thing that came to my heart was beautiful savior. The most thing, wonderful thing about Jesus for me is that he is my savior. He has provided purification for sins. My sins are blotted out, gone, lost forever in the bottomless pit of God's forgetfulness. Now, can you say that? If you can, and you want a way of publicly witnessing that you belong to Christ, we have an opportunity here. It's underneath here. It's called the baptistry. One person has come to me, one person in the congregation has come to me and has said that they want to think about being baptized as a believer. And if there is anyone else in the congregation who wants to think about being baptized as a believer, by all means come to me and we will talk about it. I'm longing to open this baptistry. I really am. And as I say, one person already has said that that's what they want to do. So if you want to think about that, by all means do so. And if, as I'm speaking, you think, well, of course I can't because I was baptized as a, as, a, as a baby, don't despair because, as my father would say, circumstances alter cases. That was the way in which he was trumped arguments. Circumstances alter cases. What I mean is this, that if God is speaking to you in your heart and saying that he wants you to witness to your faith in the waters of baptism, I am not going to stand in your way. I'm not. And just one word more. I'm afraid we'll have to leave the rest of Hebrews 1 because it's quarter past 10 and the kids are going to come in soon. But um, just one word more. Next Sunday, my infant grandson, David, is going to be baptized. Not in the baptistry. We're going to use font. Because here in our congregation, we recognize the validity of both forms of baptism. There's no time for me now to explain the ins and outs of why Christians prefer one as a over against the other. When next Sunday, when we baptize David, I will explain exactly what we are not and what we are doing. Because <laughs> we're not making him a Christian. Please God, one day he will become a Christian. His baptism won't make him a Christian. And when we open the baptistry, I will again explain exactly what we're doing. Suffice it to say that there is an opportunity for you to, minister, uh, to, to witness to your faith in the waters of baptism if that is what God is calling you to do. Thank you, David. Sorry it's only half. Perhaps at one point, some, some point in the future, we'll finish off Hebrews 1. Thank you.